As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us on the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. In this episode, we're going to be hearing something a little bit different from normal, In November 2022, Ulster University hosted the first International Academic C.S. Lewis Symposium to be held in Northern Ireland. The event, called Now We Have Faces, was hosted by the C.S. Lewis Group at Ulster University in coordination with English at Ulster, and they have very kindly let us broadcast the talks on this podcast. The presentation you are about to hear is by Dr. Sharon Jones, who teaches Literary Studies and Education at Stranmillis University College, Belfast. The title of Sharon's talk was Much Grass and Many Flowers Attending to Floral Particulars with C.S. Lewis. In the time that remains to me uh, today, I would like to tell you a story. Uh, It was Lewis who pointed out that there are stories and there are academic essays. And the difference, and I really hope he's right today, um, is that people want to hear the stories. Whereas I have never, he wrote, heard of anyone who wanted to read the essays. So this story is a personal one, and I also hope you will find it helpful. Uh, We started today with Zoom, and we're going to go back to Zoom, because my story began in pandemic lockdown. Our routines were turned upside down. I was teaching an introductory course on C.S. Lewis, not, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, Sarah, not with students on a physical college campus, as usual, but on a digital platform. Almost like something from science fiction. Between virtual classes, like many others, working from home, I found welcome screen relief in my county Antrim garden. As I planted and dug, tended and pruned, I listened to podcasts. And there it was that I learned about the medieval practice of florilegium. Originally, florilegium was the gathering of a literal floral bouquet. But it became the art of preserving short literary extracts like gathered treasure in a little commonplace book. Now, the weather during lockdown was kind, and I spent more time than ever walking outdoors. All through that spring, I bathed in the beauty of Ulster, this place where land meets the sea, the place C.S. Lewis also called home, a place he visited often and loved. And the flowers that grow here 
in my garden and also in the wild took on a new importance. They were lovely and inspiring, irresistibly beautiful and comforting. I took pictures, hundreds of them, some of them you'll see today along with some better pictures taken by my friends, and I created them alongside paragraphs and poems in a little blog that I called Writing Home. It soon became clear that I was not alone in my newfound fascination with things that grow. The charity Mind estimates that some 7 million of us took up gardening during the pandemic. A study by the University of California found that spending more time in gardenings was therapeutic, bringing a heightened sense of joy and reassurance. Some governments even issued green prescriptions instead of regular med medication, and people wrote books about it. I especially recommend Sue Stewart-Smith's The Well-Gardened Mind. Now, what, you might ask, has all this to do with C.S. Lewis? Well, alongside my pottering in the garden and walks in County Antrim, virtual classes continued. When preparing to teach Prince Caspian, two sources proved formative. That year, the annual Wheaton College Hanson Lectures were given virtually by Professor Kristen Page. I tuned in. Professor Page is a biologist with a deep love for the fiction of Tolkien and Lewis. Her book, The Wonders of Creation, is due to be published shortly. Her lectures, building on earlier eco-critical work by Dickerson and O'Hara, for example, explored the interplay between our experiences with the physical world and our encounters with literary landscapes, especially in the work of Lewis and Tolkien. They also considered the impact of this on our response to current environmental concerns, including deforestation. Around the same time, I began rereading Michael Ward's magisterial Planet Narnia and his thesis that each of the Narnia stories is aligned through careful creation of atmosphere to one of the medieval planets. Ward points out that as a medievalist, Lewis understood the power of intricacy. Lewis used this very word when describing the contrast between his walks in Ireland that commanded views of large horizons and his walks in Surrey, which gave one the same sort of pleasure that there is in labyrinthine complexity. Ward's highly systematic analysis found a clear predilection for intricacy in Lewis's creation of Narnia and evidence of an organising intelligence between the superficially chaotic. If Lewis organised his planets and stars with such care, I wondered, what about the flowers? I've debated how I'm going to pronounce this. Is it flowers or is it flowers? Uh, you might hear a bit of both. As I read Lewis's work, I started to see flowers again and again. For example, the primrose appears in The Pilgrim's Regress, that remarkable book written in Ulster in the space of two weeks in the summer of 1933 after Lewis's conversion, dedicated to his childhood and lifelong friend Arthur Greaves. Surprised by, by Joy also features flowers, beginning with the early memory of his brother's toy garden and later of a flowering currant bush that evoked in Lewis's mind 
or in Lewis, something akin to Milton's enormous bliss of Eden. Now, as a linguist, I'm fascinated that Lewis read so many books in French. It is interesting to note that Marcel Proust also wrote of a flowering currant bush, among many other plants, in his treatment of the memories of youth. The experience Lewis called joy had a lot to do with memory. Joy reminds, he wrote. Importantly for him, and I quote, nature and the books now became equal reminders, joint reminders of, well, whatever it is. Between Lewis's life in books and his life outdoors, I quote again, the mere smells are enough to make a man tipsy. Cut grass, dew-dabbled mosses, sweet peas, autumn woods. For Lewis, books about Celtic mythology were particularly green, leafy, amorous and elusive. With so much literary and natural beauty, he was, he said, sick with desire. In the final pages of Surprised by Joy, Lewis suggests that when we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He often found himself stopping to stare at roadside objects. Did he stop to look at the flowers then? He certainly enthused in his letters about the fuchsia and the gorse that he saw in Ulster during the Oxford vacations. But might flowers have mattered for Lewis in challenging times in life, as they had done for me during the pandemic? I asked a few friends, flowers? But they're so small. Tolkien was definitely a garden and he liked flowers. But Lewis? Even so, I have been encouraged to persevere in gathering Lewis's little flowers. Malcolm Geit, for example, has helped us understand not only that Lewis was concerned about the plight of the environment ahead of his time, but that following Blake, Lewis laboured well the minute particulars. With Blake and with Lewis, it might be possible to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Lewis did appreciate the beauty of gardens. His college in Oxford has particularly stunning grounds and he spent time there with friends and colleagues, engaging in conversations about literacy, literature, philosophy and faith, as we have seen, that ultimately were life-changing. Lewis also prized the natural space that surrounded his home at the Kilns. His predilection for scented plants is clear in The Four Loves. He imagines elaborate floral creatures in his science fiction. And he writes of admiring homely kitchen gardens with his friend Arthur. Now, he doesn't say much about actually working in the garden himself. He does entertain us, though, and we've heard part of this story already, the story about the great knock, Ulster Presbyterian turned atheist and keen gardener. He gardened even on Sundays, but on that day put on a different and slightly more respectable suit. An Ulster Scot wrote Lewis, may come to disbelieve in God, 
but not to wear his weekday clothes on the Sabbath. Beyond the garden, Lewis spent many happy times walking through the countryside with family and friends, covering quite remarkable distances in Ireland with his brother Warney. On the whole, many of the flowers that appear in Lewis's work are wild ones. When I explored Lewis's personal library at the Wade Centre in Wheaton College this summer, I didn't find any gardening manuals. But I did find this 1949 publication, Wild Flowers of the Wayside and the Woodland, a history over, of over 700 wildflower species with coloured illustrations. And many of the flowers that I identified in Lewis's work have annotated entries in this volume. Today, as a kind of personal Lewis florilegium, I'd like to share with you a few of the floral observations that I have gathered from my own reading. And to extend the metaphor, I've organised them into four categories, each beginning with the letter P, each with a page of its own. My first page in the Florilegium is place. There is much that is green in C.S. Lewis's work, arguably both in an ecological and a symbolically Irish sense of the word. Lewis's friend Arthur taught him to see ordinary beauty in the humble cabbage. And grass, one of the most ordinary flowers of all, so plentiful in rainwashed Ulster, plays a special role in his fiction. Grass appears at the frontiers between worlds. For example, there is Diggory's arrival from a city devoid of greenery into a new world, landing on smooth grassy ground at the edge of a pool. Lewis depicted the horrors of destruction that he experienced in the trenches of war as a landscape of sheer earth without a blade of grass. By contrast, grassy spaces in his Narnia stories are associated with the generous and generative presence of Aslan. There is Aslan's meeting with Lucy on the circular lawn. There is his singing which causes the valley to grow green with grass. There is the stretch of grassy land bubbling in all directions when the lion breathed over Narnia and bid it awake. Many of the other flowers besides grass to which Lewis uh, draws our attention are equally at home in the Ulster countryside. Lewis famously declared himself to be a votary of the blue flower before the age of six, as he gazed out from his Belfast home to the unattainable green hills beyond. Scholars, including Alistair McGrath, have rightly pointed out the role of the blue flower in German Romanticism and the concept of Sehnsucht that Lewis mentions. But the landscape of Ulster is clothed in blue flowers in early summer. Downhill forest, not far from here and visited by Lewis as a child, is known to be a particularly rich bluebell habitat. And it is a picture of bluebells that Lewis associated with his coming to faith that we've heard about at, uh, already today. It was, he writes, almost Eden come again. There is another blue flower, less commonly visible today, that grew in great swathes across Ulster, and remains to have strongly associated with it. The blue flowers of the flax are inextricably linked 
with the Ulster social circles in which Lewis moved. The family of Arthur Greaves, for example, drew considerable wealth from linen production. If Lewis's flowers do speak of home and his home place of Ulster especially, this is a good time for me to say how heartening this inaugural Lewis Symposium in Ulster University really is. Biographical work by Breslin, Blakely, Alistair McGrath, Ian Wilson and others, as well as David Clare's literary criticism, have been very helpful in foregrounding Lewis's particularly Irish literary identity as an Ulsterman. And in my own life, I've been encouraged to read Lewis's work by friends who share his Ulster roots, his commitment to creativity and the intellectual life, and his Christian faith. I think of professors John Lennox, David Gooding, and Robert Gordon, John Gillespie, to each of whom I am indebted. And I also want to thank my friend Ross Wilson, whose work helps us see Lewis's remarkable contribution in new ways and who constantly and generously encourages the creative endeavours of fellow artists and scholars from Ulster. Malcolm Geith's work illuminates beautifully the reconciliation of the mind and the imagination that eventually Lewis found in Christ, an inspiring example for us all. Whether local to Ulster or not, Lewis's flowers paint pictures, poetic images of beauty and glory. And these deserve a page of their own in my Florilegium. Can't you see, asks Lucy in the last battle, look up, look round, can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Lewis, we've already heard, attributed great importance to picturing in the mind. Most famously, he wrote that the picture of a fawn with an umbrella inspired Narnia. And the iconic wardrobe now in Wheaton College is itself carved with images of flowers. Lewis unveils. He helps us to see. He re-enchants the world by appealing with pictures to our imagination. He draws us towards flowers as pictures of beauty in the world around us. He restores our faculty of awe. Whether we are walking with the Pevensey children through patches of warm sunlight into dense masses of flowering current and among hawthorn bushes, or riding with Susan and, Lu and Lucy across Narnia in spring through wild orchards of snow-white cherry trees, up windy slopes alight with gorse bushes, across the shoulders of heathery mountains, and down, down, down again into wild valleys and out into acres of blue flowers. Yet the flowers Lewis embeds in his fiction are not solely markers of place or pictures of beauty. Here I must take a new page in my Florilegium, for many of his flowers have a purpose that is medicinal. To use a botanical term, they are physics. Oxford has had a botanic physic garden for some 400 years, and it's situated right beside Lewis's home college. In his fictional works, there are lethally poisonous plants, such as the purple wolfsbane, the name of which is given to Peter by Aslan. And there are poisonous plants present among the horrific 
creatures at the stone table. But there are triumphant, life-giving blooms too. The potent fire flowers in healing ointment given as a gift to Lucy. The exact identity of Lucy's fire flowers is unclear. But Jessica Dolan highlights in her work on Irish women and medicinal plants, an ethno-medical tradition that has been practiced across the island for hundreds of years that is strongly linked with the natural environment and that figures prominently in Irish myths and legends. For example, there is the golden dandelion, one of Ireland's most common medicinal plants and an early symbol of St. Bridget. Or the yellow gorse, used on May Day bonfires and in Ulster to dye Easter eggs. And there is the curative juice of the marshmallow gold, strongly associated with Mary. So flowers can be place markers, pictures of beauty and physics. Last but not least, they can also be prophets. They can announce, for example, the coming of spring. There are prophetic glimpses of flowers through the doorway into the joyful presence of Aslan in the last battle. And in Emmeth's apocalyptic vision, as he moves to fall at Aslan's feet, he passes through much grass and many flowers. Yet Lewis reserves the iconic image of the rose for Aslan himself. The beauty of the lion surpasses all that is in the world as the rose in bloom surpasses the dust of the desert. Flowers carry meanings then and may even carry messages. High in the list of writers with a formative influence on, on Lewis was the French scientist and philosopher Henri Bergson. Bergson placed great importance on vitality and he surmised, ahead of the current curb of plants think and even plants speak, a consciousness dormant within plants that might be awakened. And we know Lewis was also inspired by Scottish writer George MacDonald, whose poem, The Flower Angels, personifies flowers as divine message bearers. But now the angels are grown rare, needed no more as then. Far lowlier messengers can bear God's goodwill unto men. In thy face his we see, O Lord, and are no longer blind. Need not so much his rarer word in flowers, e'en read his mind. Christ himself encouraged his followers to consider the lilies of the field and to learn from them. So what can we learn from the flowers in our Lewis Florilegium? Although he did not shirk from the difficult questions of evil and suffering, including, it might be argued, environmental violence and colonialism. The floral portrait that Lewis paints is one of hope. Don't we need that in Ulster? Rather than despair. For, as place markers, his flowers remind us of the comfort of home. As pictures, they open our eyes to the glorious light of beauty. As physics, they assure us that there is healing. And as prophets, they tell of a bright future, a heavenly day of justice and deep satisfaction. Lewis summed this up in the lines of a poem, A Little Incarnation. 
displayed in the gardens of his college in Oxford. And with this, with these lovely words, we shall conclude. I heard in Addison's walk a bird sing clear. This year, the summer will come true. This year, this year. Winds will not strip the blossom from the apple trees this year, nor want of rain destroy the peas. This year, time's nature will no more defeat you, nor all the promised moments in their passing cheat you. This time, they will not lead you round and back to autumn one year older by the well-worn track. This year, this year, as all these flowers foretell, we shall escape the circle and undo the spell. Often deceived, yet open once again your heart. Quick, 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 the gates are drawn apart. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Dr. Sharon Jones. She gave that presentation at a C.S. Lewis symposium called Now We Have Faces. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>